if you live your dream and can't make it work, what's what's left? Yeah, th- that's a that's a serious question that I think yeah. anyone who who stands on that threshold between having the dream and turning it into reality uh, has to face. Because, like, yeah, there's a possibility you could fail. And on that chipper note, I want to thank you for tuning in to TRBM, the show that's ever evolving, and the one where I always say this guest is my favorite guest ever. That's a good problem to have. Uh, But I am going to distinguish this episode as being one of two that has had a personal impact on my trajectory. The first being Robin and Michael J. Sullivan, who made me aware of the ability to do direct fulfillment for books and the whole wide world of what that opens up in terms of being able to make a living as an author where you can't quite do that on Amazon, at least not realistically, and it's very difficult to do it in traditional publishing. However, my discussion with Libby Grant in this episode led me to completely change everything that I was doing to put less focus into the podcast, to put less focus on my Twitter, to put less focus on social media, and way, way, way more focus on writing books. It has been a really good transition for me ever since I had this interview with Libby, and so I'm personally grateful for her kind of giving me a wake-up call that writing is where the money is. Books are where the money is. The more books you have, the more assets you have, the more assets you have, the more you can sell. And so keep writing. Write those books. Get them out. Write uncomfortably fast. Have editors lined up. Get really super specific about what you're doing and detailed and have a schedule and follow it. That's one way to live. And what it creates is the ability that you've heard me mention in previous episodes and you'll hear Libby talk about in this episode. She writes for five hours a day and the rest of her day is hers to do what she wants with, which maybe is more writing or reading or looking out at the ocean. Uh, What an amazing opportunity. So I really hope that this episode has as big of an impact on you as it did on me. And if you are a writer and you're not writing on a regular basis, I don't know. I, I I don't know what to say about that. I was that person and I thought I was doing everything right. The whole last year, 2022, was the least writing that I've done since I discovered my passion for writing. And I'm so glad that changed. I'm so glad I got this wake-up call. I want you to get the wake-up call. And now, before we move into the episode, let me ask you, if you have one of the review copies for The Nine Lives of Marvita Longhai, my currently published novel, Will you take a moment to jump onto Amazon, to jump onto Goodreads, to leave that rating and review? It helps me so much. I am direct fulfilling my books right now, and a lot of people will see the ad that I'm running on on Facebook, and they will go and check out Amazon to see, is this book any good? It's a funny thing that that they want to look at Amazon to see that the book has value and that people are interested in it and that it gets those good reviews. So ratings and reviews really help me at this point. Take a moment, rate it, review it, and get back to writing. Enjoy my conversation with Libby Grant. All of her books, her information is linked in the show notes. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. TRBM is for writers what time-lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. What chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. What does TRBM stand for? Team Ronald Burgerman McDonald? Testosterone rebellion by men? True religion beats mythos? Chew decide. I do write novels professionally. Like this is my day job. <laughs> this yes, is my exactly. job. Yeah. Um, so in terms of what's important to me and what brings me to the page, I mean, frankly, uh, I got to pay my mortgage and, <laughs> and eat. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so- <laughs> there's there's 17,000 novelists listening right now who just threw pitchforks and flaming <laughs> torches at you because they're like, that's my dream. <laughs> I know. I know. Listen, guys, at one point, it was my dream, too, and then I made the dream come true, which was great, and then I found out how the sausage is made, and it's uh, it's different on the other side, let me tell you. Yeah, I believe <laughs> it's it. It's very I, different. I believe it. Uh, it's so still great. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, doing, I'm doing great. Um, it's fantastic. It's been wonderful. 
uh, to actually get to be at the helm of this career. And it feels really good. And I'm very proud of my achievements and very, very grateful for for uh, what I have achieved. And also mm. pretty much the reason why I write is to pay the bills. So yeah. <laughs> it, give, it gives a little bit of a different approach to your writing when you're doing it uh, for a living, like when it's yeah. no longer... Uh, something that you're doing for personal fulfillment or because mm-hmm. it's a goal you want to achieve or because it's a dream you have when it actually when the dream comes true uh, the motivations change a lot and your approach to it has to change in lockstep yeah. with it if you're going to continue to be successful at it so yeah it's it's a little wild on the other side i'm not gonna lie this is my favorite way that a podcast has opened in a long time i mean we just <laughs> dive right into the awesomeness of yeah the reality that when you live out your dream suddenly your dream also becomes part of of the nightmares that you have have when you're asleep because like if my dream doesn't sustain me then it's it's almost like there's nothing left what is there left if you live your dream and can't make it work what's what's left yeah that's a that's a serious question that i think anyone who who stands on that threshold between having the dream and turning it into reality uh, has to face because like yeah there's a possibility you could fail you might not make it happen. And, uh, that's scary. It, it's yeah. difficult when you've, when you've sort of hinged your entire identity on this dream or this goal you have, mm. uh, facing the fact, like looking that fact in the eye that, oh, fuck, mm. maybe I'm going to fail. Like that's, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can yeah. I swear on your podcast? Is yes, that okay? You can, you can swear all you want. Some people Great. don't. And I tend to stay clean most <laughs> of the time, but, uh, I just recorded a podcast with somebody where we spent an hour talking about psychedelics. So uh, ah. at that point, yeah. Yeah, you're just sort of like, we're, this is going to be what it is. And some of my uh, certain listeners are going to walk away. It's part of the, you said how the sausage is made. That's part of it is that you have to be you. And sometimes that means some people stop liking you and it's okay. Yep. I agree fully. And uh, looking forward to your episode about psychedelics, because that's another interest of mine. <laughs> uh, me too. We'll, we'll talk about that when the record button goes off. Otherwise people are like, wait, is this a writing show or? <laughs> no, it's just um... all about shrooms all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think as a storyteller, uh, we, we both are just fascinated with seeing the world through a different lens. That's certainly a, a massive piece of what brought me to writing is and brought me to fiction too is this need to be able to make sense of the world that didn't exist through uh just dry factual interpretation yeah there's a yeah. huge emphasis on facts right now and it's important because we're living in a world that is like alternative facts and yet, <laughs> yeah <laughs> fiction fiction gives me an ability to see truth through a different lens. What are your thoughts there? Because I ha- I imagine you have a fairly clear why to writing your novels, given that you're making a living on it. Yeah, well, um, so mainly, for the most part, I write historical fiction. And mm-hmm. um, my personal approach to it, you know, all different historical novelists have a different approach. Everybody's valid. I'm not trying to say that anybody needs to do it my way. But for me, I actually choose the vehicle of historical fiction so that I can write about things that are going on right now. Mm, yep. uh, so that I can, yeah, so that I can write about the present moment uh, in, a, in a way that feels approachable and safe for readers. Mm. So I, I think many of my readers don't even necessarily realize that I am writing about now yeah. instead of a, a historical past or these other characters from long ago. Uh, but I'm always finding ways to talk about what's going on currently uh, through the lens of, of a, a story set in the past. Uh, and that's that's what brings me fulfillment and what how I kind of find my way into this. Uh, like I just finished up my next book that's coming out under my pen name, Olivia Hawker. Uh, it's coming out in October and it's set during the Great Depression. And it is really about, you know, the poverty and the struggle that people are going through right now. Uh, you know, lack of workers' yeah. rights, the, the way wage is not keeping pace with inflation and how that's affecting people now, how it's giving people a sense of despair and, uh, and they're kind of losing hope for the future, which is something we all see all around us all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah. And I found the Great Depression uh, an effective vehicle for talking about our present moment with that. So that is kind of what motivates me to write the way I do is that I want to address situations mm-hmm. in the here and now, but in a way that makes it uh, safe for readers to venture into without like freaking out and having too much anxiety or being mm-hmm. pushed away from the ideas I want to get them to think about 
by feeling like I, they're being beaten over the head with like a yes. political agenda, right? You know, I don't, I want to make them feel like I'm lecturing them. I want to make them uh, come to their own conclusions <laughs> through yeah. my fiction about like, ah, maybe we shouldn't mistreat workers after all, or, you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> This is what makes uh, you uh, just a better communicator than me because you're saying exactly the same thing is, is it's difficult to look at uh, a political or religious, uh, a racial, a gender identity situation, any of those things that are all really hot buttons. And if you mention them on Twitter, just get ready to fight. All of those <laughs> topics find a really comfortable home in fiction if you find the right vehicle to write like you said you're writing historical fiction to discuss modern situations and i totally understand i was just having a conversation with someone else about how J.R.R. tolkien was writing fantasy uh to talk about world wars to talk about yeah. the division of the world and and he created a world ending paradigm with sauron so that he could say this is what it looks like to stare into the abyss Mm-hmm. And still, people today are are able to relate it to our modern situation. It's like timeless if you create fiction that does that. And so that's pretty cool for me. In, in historical fiction, I would say you have one more thing going on for you because you're set in the real world unless you're writing like speculative historical fiction. Right. Um, and in that sense, uh, you're like an echo of timelessness. I don't know if that's the right term for what I'm thinking of because it's it's got to be true of the Great Depression as well as it has to res- resonate for people today. How much do you think about that? Do you feel like you filter? Okay, long question, but I know exactly where I'm going. Okay. <laughs> in James Cameron's Titanic, when yeah. the ship is sinking, in the movie, the men raise guns so they make sure they can be on the ship uh, or on the lifeboats in history. He says, you know, I had to change that detail because my viewers wouldn't believe that the men stayed on the boat for the women and children to get on the lifeboats and save themselves. He's like, that's, that's not a context that we're familiar with. And so that's my question is, do you feel like there's ever a lens that you're writing from today where you're like, I have to change this thing about the great depression in order to make it resonate with readers today? Cause that's a second filter you're working with. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that does. Um, it's the answer's kind of yes and no, and it sort of depends on the specific message I'm trying to convey and mm-hmm. the the portion of history I'm using to look at it. Um, I always feel very strongly that, you know, I am writing fiction, so kind of anything mm-hmm. goes. If, if I yeah. want to change stuff, I can change it, and I can, you know, I, I always put in a historical note at the end so people know what I changed and what they didn't. That's something that's mm-hmm. very important to historical fiction fans. They want to mm-hmm. know what's real and what's not. Um, but I don't have any qualms about changing things when I need to. Yeah. That being said, I found that I almost never have to make any significant changes to a historical story in order to get it to work with a contemporary story. And I'm sorry, there are leaf blowers going on outside my apartment right now. Uh, I cannot sorry. hear it. It's totally fine. Okay, good. Even if I could, it's fine. We have dogs <laughs> bark and everything. This is this is a residential podcast. Oh, great. It's really <laughs> loud for me. I just moved from the country to the city and it is just like a culture uh-huh. shock. So <laughs> yeah, I hear you. What part like uh, when, when you say country, how small of a town? Uh, real small. I lived on an island that had about 1500 year round residents and it was wow. an hour and a half from the mainland. And now I live in Victoria, BC. So, wow. <laughs> so, okay. So, yeah. Big well, change. Your, your rural is different than my rural. I'm living in a town of, uh, about 900, about an hour and a half, uh, north of Omaha, Nebraska. So it's, yeah, it's still rural, but you, you had, you had water around you. Mm, yeah. All jealous. around me. Yeah, <laughs> there was exactly. no escape. <laughs> Less jealous um, of that. That would feel claustrophobic. <laughs> I liked it, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, but but that being said, I I found I I find that I don't usually have to change a lot about history because history has a way of uh repeating itself over mm-hmm. and over until we get it right and make the changes that maybe we're supposed to make in order to make mm. some improvements. So I found that uh I often find pretty damn near perfect allegories for the things I want to say in mm-hmm. history. If, if I look at the right place in history, I can typically find something that's already lined up pretty perfectly for the message I want to convey. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm struggling right now because you, you caused me to think of uh, a writer who was at the same time as Hemingway. He was originally considered kind of uh, within that same group of writers, but then he went off and got super political and, and actually really, really right toward the end of his life. Uh, he wrote a trilogy of books. I wish I remembered his name because 
it reminds me a bit of, of what you're talking about. And one thing that he did that I found fascinating when I read those three books was if he manipulated history, he would just truncate things. So he would give you the impression that all of it was happening faster by omitting years between scenarios. I thought it was a really yes. cool way that he controlled the, the flow of time. I don't talk a lot about technique on this show. But insofar as uh, historical fiction, time is a is a really cool tool that you can use to uh, create urgency that might not otherwise exist. Yeah, for sure. In fact, I, I have a podcast of my own. If people want to check ah. it out, they can. Yeah, it's called Future Saint of a New Era. It's not about writing. It's just about stuff. Awesome. But, um, but since I do write all the time, I end up talking about writing a lot on it. And I had an interesting mm-hmm. conversation recently with a friend who's a painter, and we talked about how... Um, her experience of kind of storytelling through the visual medium is different from my experience. And a lot of it had to do with some interesting points she raised about how I can use time in mm. my medium, whereas she can't really use time. She's, she's creating a story out of one single, you know, snapshot of time, whereas I can actually sort of give the impression of going through an entire span of time to my readers wow. if I want to. I was like, yeah, that's true. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. I love thinking about the differences between art forms. Uh, yeah. And that is, I, I, I'd never really thought of that before. I hadn't either. <laughs> so we've talked about a couple of things uh, that, again, are sort of hot button issues. And I really enjoy that. One, making money off of your writing. Yeah. Uh, and and two, having a message in your writing. Uh, I would say by far and away, and you and I met on Twitter, pretty much everybody that's on this podcast has some connection to me through Twitter. Um, right. But I would say most people on Twitter are fairly, if they're vocal anyways, they want to write for entertainment. Like entertainment is God. And you're not going to read a book if it doesn't entertain you. But having a message to a lot of people seems contrary to entertainment. Tell me why that's not the case. Uh, Well, it's not the case for me because I am specifically... Now, listen, I'm about to say something that sounds real hoity-toity, and you're just <laughs> going to have to forgive me, everyone. But I'm specifically trying to create art when I write a book. I'm not mm. I'm not making entertainment, although I certainly I try to make the story as entertaining as possible as well, because pulling a reader in through entertainment keeps them engaged long enough to... to uh, to work with your story and work with what you're presenting them for a, a long enough period of time that they will draw the artistic message out of it mm-hmm. and interact with it on a level of art. So, so the entertainment aspect is important to what I do, mm-hmm. but it's not, uh, it doesn't take a front seat for me. What I'm actually trying to do is tr- to create a work of art. Words are the medium I use the way a painter uses paint and brush or a musician mm-hmm. uses, you know, instruments and, and sounds. Um, and I'm trying to create a an experience of feeling, and I'm trying to uh, push an idea into the mind of my reader and let mm-hmm. it sort of settle and take root there through imagery, through you know Jungian archetypes, whatever, yada yeah. yada. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'm I'm I think that's why message and theme are so important to me because they're really central to creating a work of art. Yeah. Yeah, what part of what you're working on still resides in the world of subliminal messaging, though, because in order to implant, um, I like Christopher Nolan fairly well, and I, I often think about movies in, in like the first top of my head, I guess. And he talks about an in inception, giving somebody the idea but making them think it was their own idea. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a lot of what's happening. That's a lot of the art of it is to create an emotional response to a situation, especially writing fiction, is to create an emotional response to a situation that enables you now to think about something in a way that you never thought about it before. Uh, I don't personally see anything. And I understand the, the um, front loading by saying, you know, it's going to sound hoity toity that you're trying to create art. <laughs> I totally get where you're coming from. I don't think that that's the case for me. Writing wouldn't be worth my, my time if I didn't feel like I was creating art. And I also think that when you, we go back to painting or music or anything like that, the, the stuff that rises to the top, I want to be careful about how I phrase this because I'm sure that there are brilliant people who never gain notoriety. The stuff that rises to the top does so because it's able to engage with really deep, weighty, artistic themes in a way that entertains people insanely well. Um, yeah. Norman Rockwell. You, I'm sure that there's a painter out there right now who's cringing and saying that he's just not all that in a bag of potato chips, but it's that blend of things. Um, and so I'm going to go back again and say, you are an author who's not only making a full-time living on your writing, but you're doing so 
by creating art. You're an anomaly. You're kind of a freak show. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you're very welcome. <laughs> I don't use it lightly either. <laughs> so I, I wanna I, I wanna keep hanging out here. I agree with you that you are you're you're creating art. But I want to hear again, you're thinking about money too. You gotta pay bills. Yeah. So how's it how's it all fit? You said the the sausage being made is maybe not what you thought it was gonna be. And this is the moment where I'm inviting you to cast a little bit of light onto that. And do you have to make compromises or how's it all fit together for you? Oh yeah, for sure. That's a great question. And um I've said many times on Twitter and elsewhere too that I really feel that the majority of my success, the, the majority of the reason why I am able to do this for a living uh, has much more to do with strategy, with business strategy, mm. than it has anything to do with the quality of my writing or the types of stories wow. I'm telling. Yeah. Oh, far more. And, and, you know, I love, I love writing art. I love writing. I love, uh, literary fiction. I love like all that stuff just gets me going, but I attribute my success completely to my strategy. This is all like a, a game this shit out for real. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. so I think, I think the most important thing, if you want to make a living writing books, and particularly if you're the kind of writer like me, like you, Jody, who values artistic, the artistic aspect of writing, mm -hmm. you need to look for the places that uh, form that Venn diagram overlap between what you want to write and what is likely to sell really well. Mm -hmm. So you have to get good at sort of evaluating the market and watching where the trends are going in your genre. And, and the more you watch this stuff, the more years you spend kind of tracking what your genre does in response to what's going on socially and politically, the better you'll get at being able to predict it so that you can kind of guess before any other writers guess what's going to be the next hot, hot topic, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so for example, I was, I was one of the first, uh, the first authors in historical fiction to get a book under contract that explores the great depression because I wow. did that, you know? Yeah. I, I did that back at um, like right towards the end of the first year of the pandemic. And I was like, okay, this is what's on everybody's mind. We're all struggling. Mm -hmm. We're all feeling crushed under the weight of everything. We're all feeling like we're going to die at any second. When, what other times in, in history did people feel that way? Ah, oh, the great depression. Great. So I, I yeah. wrote up a proposal to my, uh, to my publisher. And I was like, here's what I want to do for my next book. It needs to be Great Depression. Here's why. Here's yeah. how we're going to market it. These are the themes I'm going to put into it that relate directly to what people are feeling right now. And they were like, great. How about a two book deal? I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. So, um, so you look for, you know, what do I want to say? What are my strengths as a writer? What am I drawn to on a personal level, like on a creative level? Because at least for me, I have to have some personal engagement and some like creative stake in what I'm writing mm -hmm. if I'm going to write it well. Like I can bang out a story about anything, but mm -hmm. if I don't want to go insane and get depressed, I need to be interested <laughs> in the work I'm doing too. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? So, um, so I have to look for the places where those features overlap with what's going to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's a huge part of my strategy is just doing that, first of all. And then also, you know, other aspects of strategy involve uh, choosing the right title for your book, choosing the right cover for your book, choosing the right mm -hmm. types of characters that are um, responsive to social and political images that are in people's heads right now. Like, mm -hmm. uh, like in my genre, historical fiction, it is much harder to sell books that have male protagonists. It's it's mm. just kind of yeah. is it, it's sort of what readers expect, and also I think uh, I think because throughout history men have had the majority of power in most cultures across the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, by framing your story through the eyes of somebody who has a little less power socially, you give that story a little more emotional weight. Hmm. So. Um, so you have to be strategic too about you know who you choose to put into these stories, what what your characters, how you how your characters are constructed, mm -hmm. uh, and I constantly for myself, I constantly have an eye to what's happening in the zeitgeist around me. Like how are people reacting to things right now? What's on everybody's mind right now? What are people's yeah. fears right now? What kind of guidance are people looking for that maybe they're not getting from their typical sources of guidance? And I write to those areas. I direct, like I very consciously and deliberately direct my storytelling to fill that void so that mm. people are drawn in towards it and go, oh, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. There's something strange about what you're talking about. And um, 
there's so many, so many points where I had to say, all right, just keep listening. Cause there'd, there'd be a response <laughs> that I wanted to say. And I was like, this is it. But you, you landed in a place that's really captivating to me. Um, when the pandemic started and the masks were enforced, I was really steeped in a couple of people specifically, but I was listening to a lot of Brad Listy on other people. Um, I was listening to a lot of people just, I'm drawn to the art of people who happen to be anti-Trump and really anti that political thing and the stories mm-hmm. that they were telling. And so I was hyper conscious of a certain perspective on the world uh, and that's happened to me a lot of times. And then I go out into my day to day. And at that point in time, I was still working in sales. So I would go into a gas station to train one of the employees that I was managing. And I would realize nobody's thinking about these things in, in like the broader world. You know, it's almost like there's a, a cloistered, closeted off part of the world that's really digging deep into that kind of theme that I'm hearing on other people, uh, a literary fiction podcast about books uh, featuring interviews with writers. Uh, and, and you're like, oh, this is interesting that there's this whole part of the world that is thinking about it. And then there's a much bigger world that doesn't even realize it's a problem. How often is that something that you think about? How often do you think that things in this community feel bigger to us because of our spotlight on them? Uh, well, you know, to be honest, I'm kind of a, I kind of live under a rock. I'm kind uh, of an outsider. <laughs> yeah. I am a little bit of an outsider in the writer community. Like, you know, I'm, I'm nobody's first thought when they're thinking like, who am I going to get to endorse my book or whatever? And, sure. and uh, that, that shows in my own endorsements because nobody will endorse my books unless uh, they know me personally. They're just like, yeah. who, who's this person? Mm. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm not really in the loop with a lot okay. of writer community stuff, but I will ah. say this in terms of things that maybe writers think about more consciously or, or ruminate on or dwell on more, whereas, um, people who are not writers might not think about that stuff so much. Uh, I, I think I think that there's a lot of subconscious absorption of those ideas that goes on in the yeah. general public. Like, I don't think, I, I think for the rest of our lives, for your life and mine, for, for the duration of everyone's life who was alive during the pandemic, stories that can reflect on the idea of masking and what wearing Mm -hmm. a mask meant politically to two different Mm -hmm. groups of people will always have resonance because that will be like that conflict that we all went through together is in our collective psyche forever yeah forever until like new generations of people are born who never knew that reality that will always be a part of us now Mm -hmm. so i think you could successfully come up with a historical novel or a sci-fi novel or something that that calls on those ideas of sort of uh, presenting a, a physical and a, a visually identifiable badge of of how you feel about other people and other people's right to exist safely mm-hmm. um, will always have extreme resonance with people. That that will be like a gong ringing in the blood of anyone who lived through the pandemic, even right. if they don't recognize, even if they don't realize consciously that you are writing about that experience of the pandemic, or if they don't realize that what they're responding to is this sort of psychic echo of what they went through in, Mm. you know, 2020 through 2022 or whatever, um, it will still be there. It it still is in the mind. And, um, and you can always leverage that if you understand how to leverage psychic Mm. echoes powerfully Uh, as an uh, artist. uh, (laughs) That that sounds, that sounds amazing and really scary in some ways, but I I agree with you. I'm thinking about uh, just recently here, there was a football game between the Bills and the Bengals. And one yeah. of the players, uh, DeMar Hamlin, he he had cardiac arrest, died on the field, had to be resuscitated twice. And it was for me at the time, I'm, I'm watching the game. I'm a Bills fan through a friend of mine that I went to MFA with. He's a big Bills fan. So I didn't have a team. I adopted them and then just really got into them. But so I'm watching this game. And my very first response was, Get him off the field so we can get back with the game. And then I realized how callous I am when when it starts to become clear that it's very serious. Um, and by the end of when they stopped doing coverage, my wife and I watched it. We put our kids to bed, but we were watching coverage, just trying to learn as much as we could. And it, we had to have conversations with my kids because they were upset, too. They're like, where's the football game? And you'd be like, there's a life on the line right now. Um, and so I went into the morning. Uh, and I jump on Twitter and I rarely get into these conversations, but I wanted to see what was up and coming, what was happening. And somebody I admire 
really deeply for his tenacity and the business he's built and what he means to me just as a thought leader on on um, courage and relentlessness. He said that they had to find out whether it was related to COVID vaccine. And it oh, made me so mad that I, I, and I know he will never see my response, but I, I tweeted at him and I was like, I expect better of you. This is not about COVID right now. Sure. Uh, when he's healthy and better, if you want to raise that question, fine. But they're like, uh, read the room timing. This is a human yeah. life. This is not an opportunity to politically position yourself. But I was shocked because as I started digging around, I would say uh, the majority of comments had something to do with COVID. And I was like, this it will. You, what you said is so true. For the rest of our lives, it will it will be something where you know immediately which side you're on. And it feels very Civil War to me. So I could see writing yeah. historical fiction, um, not that the Civil War has been too traveled probably, but uh, it, it brings up, you know, a, a perfect division uh, among us. Yeah, it certainly does. And um, I'm actually, I, I've always loved sci-fi as a reader. I've never really had enough good ideas as a writer to pursue it. But recently, yeah. I've really been pushing myself to step into that realm more and to really move into sci-fi because there are mm-hmm. some things I want to say about, for example, civil wars yes. <laughs> and, uh, and um, what are their consequences and their fallouts and what causes them and how long do they take and how long does it take for us to recognize that we are in civil wars? And I figured sci-fi might be a fresher way to do that than historical fiction because it, it is a road that's been very thoroughly traveled in that genre mm, and it's like exactly. eh, yeah. maybe got to get paid i got to make some <laughs> money so like i, I probably am not going to have a lot of luck selling a civil war novel and making it into a bestseller but like if i branch over yeah. into sci-fi and bring these ideas over there like maybe yeah. i can so. Absolutely. That's so exciting too. It wraps back around to what you were talking about, about an artistic pursuit. And if you're anything like me, um, the idea of, of working in multiple genres is as much art as anything else. Like I want to challenge myself and try a new, a new form of this thing that I love. Yeah. For sure. I uh, I love working in multiple genres. And even within h- historical fiction, I don't really stick with like one uh, setting. The most I've mm-hmm. ever done, I've done like nine novels set in ancient Egypt. And I love ancient Egypt, but I just got so burnt out on it. Like, even though I still yeah. have readers who are like, please do more ancient Egypt. I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> sick of it. Yeah. I'm so tired of writing about it. But um, but yeah, I really, really enjoy branching out and exploring other settings, other genres. Like that's exciting to me. And mm-hmm. uh, it 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 poses a challenge as a professional writer. How do you do that without just tanking your you know your established audience? Like you have yeah. to you have to be very strategic and very careful about it. And uh, multiple pen names help a lot. So I encourage people to use pen names. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing that I want to discuss is pen names are, are an interesting thing. I didn't know that they were used as widely as they are, to be honest, um, outside of like the the self-published community. I know of self-publishers who do it a lot to try to keep their, their Amazon stats really clean. Um, and I also know that if you write like erotica or romance and something else that a lot of times romance and erotica get moved over into a pen name as well. Uh, I guess one question I have, and, and maybe the answer is painfully obvious, but doesn't it make it more difficult to market yourself if you have to be building four bridges at the same time, i.e. four different pen names? Yeah, I mean, I mainly solve that problem by just not really bothering to market myself. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know yeah. how well that works out. But I mean, I, I probably could sell a lot more books um, and make way more money and probably have more notoriety if I focused harder on marketing. But um, I've also found that uh, the, the thing, the old little bit of advice that writers tend to kick around is very, very true. The best thing you can do to sell your books is to just write more books. And mm-hmm. um, that's just kind of what I focus on. I'm naturally a very fast writer. There's no way if I did everything under one pen name, there's no way I could I could I could keep uh, all my contracts square with my publishers in terms of like non-compete clauses and stuff. So I mm-hmm. have to write under multiple pen names, even though like I do historical fiction under two pen names because yeah, I write too many historical novels a year. And um, and they and don't want your sales. You don't want them to compete against yourself. That's what right. Doing. Exactly. And like my wow. publishers, my publishers don't want me bringing out, you know, another book within like six months of theirs. So mm-hmm. um, I have to operate two different pen names in order to like keep everybody happy it's just part of the juggling act of what i'm doing basically and you know there are are romance authors who do the same who write romance Mm -hmm. under just like multiple pen names because they write so damn fast um 
So I find it useful for for that that utility. It's good for uh, keeping different sort of branches of my income separate, so that mm-hmm. I don't get into any legal trouble with with contractual obligations. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it is also extremely useful for uh, like if you if you were to focus on marketing, you would want to have a very clear name. That's mm-hmm. like, this is my sci-fi so that you can really compartmentalize that and really yeah. target, you know, that specific audience for that specific product. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I, I do fine by just cranking out an ass load of books every year <laughs> and, and not really bothering to market them. Like I am making plenty of money. I don't need more. So I'm not going to bust my ass adding this yeah. whole like aspect to my job that is just. You know, why I like my free time. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've gotten my career to the point where I only have to work like five hours a day. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of the time smoking weed and listening to music. I'm not going to market. <laughs> so <laughs> I wish I could say that that sounds horrible, but that actually sounds really, really nice. Uh, Look, I have, I'm not going to lie. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I have a conflict in my own um, upbringing. I, I often say on the show, I was raised uh, uber Christian. And so hard work is ingrained in me as being kind of like part of salvation. You have to work really hard. You have to believe in Jesus and you have to hate gays. I think those are the three <laughs> main things that a good Christian does. I've been fortunate enough to get to, to get over the issue with the gays. I have a gay mom and a gay sister, and I've hurt them a lot in, in trying to learn and grow through that. Um, but hard work persists as this thing that like my whole value is built on how hard I work. And I still see a lot of value in it. I, I like working hard. I like um, outdoing myself, surprising myself with what I'm capable of. But I also find that I'm the one in my family who, if we go to the the lake on a Saturday, my wife is just busy about doing things. She doesn't want to sit still. It takes like four or five beers before she wants to just sit and relax. I could be stone sober and just stare at the water for hours. Um, and <laughs> yeah. it's fascinating to me. And I like that relaxation. So there's what a conflict. Yeah. I, you know, it's not that I don't like hard work. I do. I, I know. I and very... I'm sorry if that's what I was implying. No, 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 no. Okay. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I, I, and by the way, I was raised Mormon, so I totally get where you're coming ah, from. There you this. Go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Same. wow. <laughs> um, I'm a very bad Mormon these days for sure. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I do, I do work hard, but I work hard on my craft. I find that that's the best application of my time and energy for me, um, is to really focus hard on, leveling up with every book I write. Mm. Um, because I've learned from experience that I don't know if it's just my genre, if it's my approach to like social media or what, but but marketing is very hit or miss for me. Sometimes mm-hmm. it works great. Sometimes I can put so much effort and money into it and it does not work at all. And that's mm-hmm. very frustrating. But I have found that the one thing that consistently gets results and keeps my backlist churning is to bring out a new book as often as possible. Wow. So that's where I focus my efforts. I just write more under, you know, whichever pen name needs a little bit of love right now. And I just keep it coming. And and that's um, that's what works for me. And, you know, like I said, yeah. I write about five hours a day and that's it. And then I'm done for the day. And uh, once in a while, I do have to do some marketing stuff, like especially mm-hmm. sometimes my publishers will line up stuff for me to do. And I'll do yeah. that stuff, of course. But um, but yeah, I don't like, you know, anybody who follows me on social media knows I'm not on Twitter to like tell anybody about my books. Like I barely mm-hmm. mention them in my right. bio. I'm on Twitter to yell at Matt Gates and make stupid stoned <laughs> tweets. Like that's all I do. And, and that's, that's just kind of, I'm just being myself. And I yeah. think, um, I think people who have a real talent for marketing and who are very personable and approachable on social media have a mm-hmm. nice leg up. If they're also good writers and they mm-hmm. um, can amalgamate those two things, they can be very successful at it. And God bless you. If that's you, that is not me. Like nobody wants to hang out with me. No one wants to spend time on my social media. Um, I am nobody's picnic and I just lean into that and embrace it. And, you know, this is who I am, warts and all. And that's just, <laughs> yeah. it, it probably chases like my brand, my author brand sucks. Like mm-hmm. my, my brand is that I'm a, a middle-aged stoner. That's, that's mm-hmm. just, that's what I lean into because that's what I am. And I'm no good at pretending to be like this bubbly, um, mm-hmm. all-inclusive personality that everybody wants to cozy up to and read her books. Like that's just, that's fake for me and I can't yeah. maintain it for long. So I'm like, all right, well, if I scare people away by being who I really am, then I guess that's not my audience anyway. So anybody yeah. who wants to read what I write uh, just has to take me as I am. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's my approach to social media and marketing. <laughs> 
You know, and it's working for you, though. So uh, I started this episode, I think I was already recording, but I mentioned that um, it was a show about marketing for a long time. And I do mm-hmm. like marketing. I, I really, I, I love the puzzle of it. I like the work that goes into it and trying to figure out how to get people to respond to something and not make them feel used. One of my biggest bones to pick with most marketers and advertisers is that essentially they've taken on the attitude, hey, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. So they go out there and they're just crass and brash and they don't care about anybody's feelings. So they're just like, buy this, buy this, buy this, buy this. It's the only language they speak. And a lot of people are turned off, but they can make a living because they just like they're playing the numbers game. That's not for me. I don't want to do that. However, you're doing the same thing but you're prioritizing something else. You're saying, yeah, that's true. write this, write this, write this, write this, write this. And that, that's that's your buy this button. So your marketing is actually just a, the perpetual name machine is your pen names are pump, pumping out books at a, enough speed that people don't forget about you. Yes, I like exactly. your version though. I really, I'm attracted <laughs> to your version. I'm trying to move that way uh, more so after a year of building up this whole marketing thing and realizing, you know, I don't write novels like I used to. I, I used to be able to mm-hmm. to write a draft of a novel in three months, which is probably slow by comparison to you um, and and kind of work my way through ready, ready novel in, in eight or nine months. And that felt really nice. I, I didn't write a single complete novel in 22. And that is shameful to me because that's what I quit my job to do. Yeah. Yeah, it can be very easy to get caught up in uh, all the talk that goes around online mm-hmm. writing communities about how you should be doing it mm-hmm. um, and, and how much marketing you should be doing and how much time you should be, you know, like the necessity yes. of building up a platform or else publishers won't even look at you and yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, none of it's true. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing, listeners to this podcast. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Those are, those are the rules by which I live my life is that mm. there are no rules. And if I can conceive of something and if I can wrangle a way to bring it into reality, then I'm going to do it. And mm. it's going to work probably because it's usually worked in the past when I've just invented my own path into something. So mm. if you're despairing because you're not good at social media, um, that doesn't mean you'll never have a writing career. I fucking suck at social media. I'm the worst <laughs> in the world at it. And here I am making a good living writing fiction, you know, like yeah. you can, you can do it. You just have to be unconventional about it. You have to have a different approach to it and you have to focus on What's at the heart of all of this? Because you can do all the marketing in the world, but if you don't have a book that's going to excite people and make them talk about it and make them recommend it to one, to their friends and to their family members, then all the marketing just goes to waste anyway. You're just yeah. screaming into the void, you know? Yeah. You've got so, to have a, a product there that is worth talking about if you're going to get people to talk about it. Oof. Yeah, I was going to ask a different question, but that's like uh, <laughs> kind of a showstopper right there. <laughs> That is, that's true. Um, That's what, that's what scares the trash out of me. That scares me so bad to think about. I, um, I did so, so, uh, and anybody listening to the podcast knows, so apologies to, to, to you all for hearing this again. I had a literary agent that I signed with in 2019 and she was so enthusiastic about my book. And I knew I was like, it's going to get a six figure advance and we're off to the races. And I'm, I'm, this is going to be amazing. Uh, and three years later, I limped in with uh, an offer on that same book uh, that came from an email I sent to somebody. And I said, hey, if you'd be interested in this book, um, I'm represented by this agent. I know she didn't submit to you, but uh, if if you like it, then get in touch with her. And he reached out and said, um, this is what I'd like to do. And we want to put you on our spring 25 calendar. Uh, can I reach out to your agent? And I said, say again, when? And he said, spring 25. And I said, no, I can't do that. So I called my agent and I told her, I can't keep doing this anymore. I can't do it this way. Good Um, for you. Yeah, right. It was good. But it was also this moment where I I had to kill a dream of publishing traditionally. um, And I still feel the pain of that. Um, And and that's all to say, a gorilla published my first novel just now. And thinking about, you know, finding a readership. Where was I going with this? There was a very specific purpose. Oh, the good book. So that's what scares me is that, yes, I, I had an agent. So by somebody's standards, my book was good, but it never, it never got that, that offer that I was thinking. It never won the $250,000 advance that I wrote on my chalkboard while I was sitting selling insurance, dreaming. Uh, maybe the book is shit. 
maybe people are going to start reading it now that I'm selling it. There's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 copies uh, in people's hands at this early stage of the game. Um, yeah, right. And what if they start... What if they start looking at it and just saying, no, it's not good. The pacing is bad. Uh, I had a friend of mine who said, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little too detailed for my, for my likes. And it, like immediately I just started thinking of all the things. Maybe I'm not actually a good writer. What would, what would I do? Cause if you don't have a good product, just like you just said, oof, anyway. Well, can it, do we have enough time for me to put a little bit of perspective on that too? Oh, from my- yeah, you, you certainly you certainly do. I don't want to diminish your point though, because I think your point is true, and I think it stands. And time will tell if the book is good. But please do, yes, put perspective on it because you you have a lot well, of books I, out there. And I want to, and, and I think there are a lot of other people out there who are thinking the same thing, who might yeah. be standing kind of at a, a same or similar point in their careers and and have that same fear. So yeah. So I would encourage you to think about a couple of things. First off, good and bad are subjective. Like I know we have all heard this before, yeah. but like really it's true. It, who's maybe you are a bad writer to somebody else. Maybe you're the world's best writer to another person. Who's uh-huh. right? Who's wrong? Yeah, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're both right and they're both wrong. The people so, who are helping me cash a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So you have to kind of know who you are writing for. Like, you're not writing for somebody who doesn't enjoy a lot of detail. You're writing for people who like big, juicy detail and and really deep immersion in worlds. And you have to be willing to let go of the readers who aren't into what you're doing. They're Mm -hmm. not your readers. That's fine. And also, what if the book bombs? What if it's not very successful? What if it gets a bunch of bad reviews Mm-hmm. And people are like, this book sucks and I want my money back. Um, yeah, what right. then? What, what are you going to do? Like, it's not a rhetorical question. Really ask, ask yourself mm-hmm. that question and find an answer that feels right to you. For mm-hmm. me, when I was facing that, that dilemma with myself, um, my answer was, well, I guess I'm going to learn how to write better. If, if I run into a situation where people are like, this book sucks, then I will learn how to write books that most people don't think sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. like you gotta, you have to come up with a game plan for what you're going to do next. And also, the best book I've ever written has also been the worst mm. commercial experience of my entire publishing career. Um, but here's the thing. When I got through the final edit on that book, I was reading through it and I got to the last word and I burst into tears because mm. I realized that I had done it. I had written a truly great book. Like wow. I had achieved a goal in my life, which was to create a great work of art. My previous books had been pretty good, but I'd always felt like, yeah, that's pretty mm. good. It's good enough to make some money, but it's not what I want to achieve. That mm-hmm. book was what I wanted to achieve. And the fact wow. that no one else even knows it exists hurts me a lot sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. painful. But also there are moments when I sit there and I think, fuck, man, I wrote a truly great novel. Like, it is out there, and I did it. And it doesn't really matter if other people don't think it's great, because I know it is. Mm. So, um, you have to trust yourself in in some in some respect. Like, you have to ultimately mm-hmm. acknowledge yourself as the, the final say in whether what you're doing is right and in line with your goals and good or not. You got to just yeah. trust yourself. What is so absurd about everything that you just said is that it's it's in line with everything else you've said, but there's a, a portion of people or a fraction of people who think you just contradicted yourself because earlier you mentioned writing books that people want to read, that that dance that we have with them. And so there's this part of it where you have to be true to the vision that you have and the thing that is in you, the the spirit in you that wants to speak something out there. And the closer you get to communicating that thing accurately as you envisioned it in your head before you put the first word on the page the more you know it's great. I think I think at least that's that's my understanding of when I'll know. Uh well in fact I do think that I wrote a great novel. But uh Good. aside yeah yeah aside from th- from that I feel like the reason is because it rang very true to what I meant to do. I intended to do something and I accomplished it real close to what I wanted to do. Yeah. That's hard. I think that's really difficult um to do. So let's now I don't know how I want to approach this. Maybe I don't even. I was just thinking about in terms of <laughs> the the number of novels that you've written. A question that keeps lingering with me, and it seems that it fits here as as well as anywhere else, is uh, there are p- 
people out there who have accused James Patterson or Stephen King, because I have to mention his name in every episode of this podcast, uh, (laughs) of using ghostwriters, because there's no way you could write that many books. Um, So talk to me about about that, because that's it. That's it. Like a not only a a mean thing to say about an author, but it also is at conflict with the idea that it couldn't possibly be art if you're able to write that prolifically. And that's certainly not my experience, but I, I just want to hear your take on it or you riff on that that idea of being prolific and being artistic. Sure. I mean, first of all, James Patterson, like objectively does use ghostwriters nowadays. <laughs> yes, I, I know he does. Right. So that was probably a bad so example. There's that. Yeah, there's uh yeah, you're right. Yeah, but but it but it's a question that gets kicked around a lot, and and um, it's a question that uh, I have been asked as well because I do write so many books. People are like, "Are you hiring out people to do this work?" I'm not. Um, it's just that I have practiced for so long, <laughs> put in so much work that it just becomes second nature. And when you write a book, you're juggling a lot of smaller skills that. Um, when you're earlier in your writing journey are uh, are not well established yet. You know, mm. you're, you're learning how to do pacing and character arcs and conflict and uh, hooks and, and dialogue that feels real, but doesn't really read the way people really talk because that's terrible mm. to read. And you know, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot all at once. And you have to stop and think about this stuff frequently, but the more you do it and um, the more experience you have with it, the more, the less you have to think about it. Like it mm. becomes more instinctive to do all this stuff. And before you know it, you're banging out a complete book that's pretty damn good for a first draft in like three months. Yeah. Like it just, it comes together faster the more you do it. And, um, and that's, that's a big part of, of getting to the point where you can do it professionally, I think, and sustain yourself is just being able to produce the volume uh on a schedule and like predictably and it just you know like i said it takes time my first two books each took me two years to write and then it got faster from there so wow. um, yeah. so it, it's normal for it to take longer at first and for you to disbelieve that anyone can actually write a good book in in mm-hmm. like just a couple of months but you know like professionals can do it because just we've been doing it forever it's just yeah. part and parcel of our, our daily work to us um in terms of doing it artistically i don't think that I don't think that um, that uh, speed has anything to do with whether a book is artistic or not. I think mm-hmm. that has. I think that comes from the writer. Uh, there are some people who just want to tell an entertaining story that's fun to read, and that's awesome. And I am not saying that anybody is wrong or less of a writer or less accomplished because they're you know quote unquote just mm-hmm. writing fun entertaining stories, um, but. If it's just kind of in your soul, if it's important to you to also produce artistically, it's just something you will also add into your books. It'll just be an important mm-hmm. element to you and you will make sure it gets into as many books as you can. I won't say every book because I've had a few where I was like, God, I just need a paycheck and I just <laughs> just barfed something out as fast as possible. Yeah. And there wasn't much of myself in it and it did the hmm. job. But, yeah. um, you know. Yeah. yeah, you hear you hear that. I think of um, like Edward Norton, uh, an, an actor who uh, essentially every role that he's picked for himself throughout his career, he's picked for the artistic purposes. And even he was in um, a, a remake of a car chase movie. And he says, you know, just sometimes like there's a you, you signed a two picture deal and you wanted so badly to be in the one picture that you knew you might get, uh, you know, molested into a horrible movie, which is exactly yeah. how he feels it went. Um, and, and but that's cool. You know, we make we make trade offs. And I think that that is very true. I like what you're saying as well about speed, not having anything to to do with art. It rings really true to me um yeah because the the book i was talking about earlier that i think is the best book i wrote uh happened really fast the other thing i love that you mentioned is the anti Anne lamont there's the a point in your career where you don't have to write a shitty first draft uh and that's that's cool to think about not to say that you don't need to edit or revise a first draft but you were just saying you can write a fairly clean first draft because you've done it so many times and i want to encourage people listening to take heart in that, to to go ahead and write more books because it, it might not always feel so painful on that first draft. Oh yeah, for sure. I don't don't expect yourself to write a perfect first draft or even a clean first draft for mm-hmm. sure. But also, the more you do it, the easier it gets. So like, don't dwell forever on your first draft trying to make it perfect. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. I've never written a perfect book. I mean, even my best book I've ever written, I'll read back over it. And I'm like, I wish I would have done that part differently. You know? Yeah. <laughs> 
no one writes a perfect book ever. You will not be the first to do it. Take that pressure off yourself and um, and move on to your next one. As soon as the first one feels good enough to you, mm. move on to your next one because you gain more experience, you gain more value uh, and more knowledge and more confidence from writing more different books. Like move on to something else. Let this one go and let it become whatever it's going to become in the world, which mm-hmm. is maybe nothing. Maybe it was just your yeah. practice round and that's fine. I wrote a lot of practice rounds before I ever mm-hmm. you know wrote something I felt was worthy of being published. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm thinking uh there's there is an attitude within at least the academic community that I was steeped in which which says uh it's almost a badge of honor to look back at your old work and be uh disgusted by it. Like I've grown <laughs> so much as a writer that that old stuff I wrote is disgusting to me. And I don't think that that's any more true than uh anything else it, it's it, what you were just saying made me think of that so much as yeah there's some duds that we write like i i wrote a book that uh it's the most recent novel that i grappled with i wrote so many drafts and i finally just quit i was like i can't make this happen i don't know why but i can't do it and that's I'm a pretty decent way into my writing career so i yeah. want to i want to land uh this conversation on a quick discussion between uh traditional publishing what you're doing and self-publishing it's clear to me because you like this, uh, the five hour a day lifestyle that you have, and it fits your personality, your desires, your needs. You have the readership you want. You're living your best life in many ways, knowing that at this point, with all the mechanisms in place, you could start to self-publish and quadruple your income. Does that ever tempt you? Or knowing that you would then have to become the marketing machine, it's just like, no way. Oh, I started out in self-publishing. Um, uh-huh. I Yeah, I started out in self-publishing because I could not get any publishers interested in my books. Mm. I went through two different agents who neither one was worth a hill of beans. <laughs> <laughs> I started out in self-publishing and built my audience that way. I actually quit my day job um, from self-publishing and bought my first house from self-publishing income. So. Beautiful. I love self-publishing. I am a huge proponent of it. I encourage everyone. I think any smart writer working today needs to be self-publishing at least some of their stuff. And um, and you wouldn't be doing anything wrong if you self-published all your stuff. I think traditional publishing has its pros and cons too, and it might not bring enough pros to the table to be mm-hmm. something that you want to incorporate into your business. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it deserves a lot of careful thought before you venture into it because it has a lot of frustrations. Um, I branched into sell, into traditional publishing for very specific reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I was able to reach other other readers that I couldn't yeah. get to through my self-publishing activities. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's why I went that route. Uh, I, I have not self-published anything since 2019, just because I haven't needed to. Again, I'm mm-hmm. a big, I'm kind of lazy. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't really believe in astrology, but I am a Taurus. So if anybody out there believes in astrology, <laughs> I guess that'll tell you everything you need to know about me, um, which also explains my propensity for just getting high and listening to music. That's very Taurian, I understand. But uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I haven't self-published anything for a number of years just because uh, I'm I'm doing fine on my traditionally published income. But mm-hmm. I have also very carefully and very specifically defended my right to self-publish in all of my contracts with publishers because I may go back to it at some point in the future. Amazing. Like it might be the right path for um, a book. I, I am working on a novel right now and I've already kind of decided that if I don't get enough uh, enthusiasm from traditional publishers about it, I am going to self-publish it. I'm not wow. going to allow the same thing to happen to that book that happened to the prophet's wife, which was the best book I've ever written. I'm so I'm so glad that you you mentioned the title because I had to come back around and figure out which book it was, so that I made sure to to promote it more than anything else. Uh, you know, see if we can get this <laughs> ship turned around, starting with TRBM. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's tough to see something that you love that much uh, feel like it's not getting its dues. Here's a follow up question, and then I truly am done asking you questions. Uh, is there any reason to try to self publish literary fiction? I have I have a book that I've I've thrown around self-publishing that's literary. It's fully edited. It's a, a book I really like. Um, but there's this big part of me that one is is thinking genre-wise, it's such a departure from from the other stuff that I do now. Um, and also, I've just heard literary fiction is kind of uh, a losing battle in the self-publishing world. Well, literary fiction doesn't, um, so doesn't tend to make a lot of money in self-publishing. So if you're going into self-publishing because you want to support right. yourself from your writing, I would not suggest literary fiction as the genre to do that with. But if you have a book mm-hmm. that is literary and it's not finding traction with publishers, it's not going to hurt it to self-publish it, you know? <laughs> it's it, it's not a bad thing. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you close you close the door most likely on finding a publisher for it if you wanted to do that. That's I think my my contemplation partly is I think okay, if I could do similar to what you've done and build momentum through the books that I'm publishing right now, then maybe I can take the success and the sales numbers and say, "Hey, I'm looking for a very specific traditional publishing contract for this book. I don't even need it to be much, but I'd love to see it out in the world and um it would fit better with a, a yeah, publisher sure. than it would self-published." That's I think that's been, a smart move. I, I think you should try Try it and see how it goes. And if at the end of that, you still are not getting the kind of traction you want with Hmm. traditionally publishing a literary novel, then yeah, self-publish it. I mean, it's not going to hurt. Well, this was an amazing conversation. I could talk to you for so, so much longer, but right now is the opportunity for you to do what you love to do most and go ahead and market yourself to all the listeners where they can find you, how they can buy your books. Oh, sure. Uh, well, uh, LibbyGrant.com has links to buy. The Prophet's Wife, uh, Hawker Books, H-A-W-K-E-R Books.com has all my other stuff. And um, if you want to, you can check out my podcast, which is about everything and nothing. It's called Future Saint of a New Era. Mm. Future Saint of a New Era. You're good at titles for sure. You mentioned that earlier. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yes. I will have links in the show notes to all of the places where you can be found. I'll even link to your Twitter profile because I personally love Twitter and I enjoy interacting with you on Twitter. You have a a really good knack for being um, just slightly sarcastic. And I I enjoy that (laughs) a ton. Thanks. I mean, like I said, that's just what I really am. So yeah. 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 (laughs) Perfect. Uh, It was great talking with you. You too, Jody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening? Nobody's listening.